theyeshiva.net. Questions and answers, and I'm reading here the first question, almost verbatim, with a few grammatical uh, corrections. How do I get used to staying focused, pleasing Hashem and my soul, not others? In the Hasidic community where I live, it's extremely hard because everybody is into everyone. How do I do what's right rather than care so much what others will say? For example, I'm at the last minion of Mincha. I forgot my hat and jacket for davening. If I go home to get it, I'm going to miss Mincha, the minion, and sunset. I would rather, unfortunately, not go to shul so people don't see me. I think that's totally wrong. I should go daven with a minion even with a hat and jacket, but I'm afraid of what people are going to say. Another example. I have a friend who grew up with me in my Hasidic community, a very close friend. He left Judaism. He's completely not religious. I'm still close to him, and I try to remain close to him. I still will never invite him for Shabbos because I'm embarrassed that people should see that he's with me and coming to my house. I believe this is wrong. Hashem wants me to bring him to shul, to bring him to my house. Maybe I can even have a positive influence on him. But I so worry what people will say. So here I am, people pleasing. (laughs) Okay, that's a good question. I don't know what the question is. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we all have to make a choice how we're going to live our lives. If we're going to live our lives to, to please others, or we're going to live a life that we, which we're going to be true to our soul and true to our conscience and true to Hashem. They tell, uh, I don't know who it is, he didn't sign his last name, so if you're here, I'll say you. If you're watching, it's also you. If you'll hear it after, it's still you. They tell an old anecdote, it's one of my favorite anecdotes. There was a, uh, a mouse, and the mouse lived in a wonderful Jewish home, and the mouse loved it in the Jewish home, because the balabasta loved cheese. So the mouse used to have a feast daily on all types of new uh, Swiss cheeses that made their way into the house. One day the owner of the house decided he wants a cat. And from that day the life of the mouse became miserable. This cat was chasing the mouse constantly. So the mouse turned to the creator of the world and said, Reboi I have been such a good little creature. Why would you want to make my life miserable? Shem says, what do you want from me? He says, if you can only turn me into a cat, I would be happy for the rest of my life. Shem says, you know what? You've been good. Abra, Kadabra, Kadu. And the mouse morphed into a cat. And bliss has at last overtaken its life. The owner decided to buy a dog. And this dog really didn't get along with the cat. And the poor cat began 
being persecuted and hunted down by the dog, and the cat comes to Hashem and says, Why did you afflict this cat? God says, what do you want? He says, if you could just turn me into a dog. Hashem says, no problem, abracadabra, and the cat became a dog. Now one day this dog was a little wild, and the owner decided he's going to start disciplining this dog, he began zapping the dog, and if you know if you know what zapping a dog is, dogs are very afraid of being zapped. And the poor dog was now terrified from its master. Turned to Hashem and said, "Why? Why shouldn't you give me apple?" He says, "What do you want?" He says, "If you can turn me into the man of the house, the boss of the house, and finally I'll be at peace, I'll be at rest." Abracadabra becomes the man of the house. All is wonderful until his wife comes home. His wife comes home and she starts giving him a piece of her mind. The poor guy is terrified, scared. He turns to Hashem. He says, God, what do you want now? From a mouse, a cat, from a cat, a dog, from a dog, a man. Yes. He says, if you could make me the woman of the house. If you could make me the woman of the house, now all will be wonderful. And indeed, he morphed in to a woman standing by the kitchen with confidence and joy, and suddenly she saw a mouse. <laughs> right? So you get the point. <laughs> she turns to God and says, Why? Why? She says, What do you want? Make me a mouse. She says, That's what you always were. That's what you always were. But it's really the story of life. I'm trying to impress you. You're trying to impress him. He's trying to impress somebody else. And that guy's trying to impress me while I'm trying to impress you. So I think this is a real decision people have to make. It's not an easy decision. And we all, we all, we all uh, I think, fall. Uh, we're all victims of it in one way or another. Even those who are very macho and overconfident are sometimes uh, so overconfident because they're so frightened and therefore... They're afraid, God forbid, for somebody to accuse them of not being overconfident. I should, however, just say that there is an important distinction to make. You mentioned, for example, a hat and a jacket and so on and so forth. There are things that are good. They're good. They're noble. They're wonderful. They're good traditions. They're great customs. They have meaning to them. They have, they have depth to them. It may be a, 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 a hidur mitzvah, whatever it may be. It's just you're not disciplined or you're often lazy or you're not in the mood. But you're talking about things that are objectively good and, uh, and you would really, really want to do it. It's just you don't have the discipline, you're lazy and so forth. And when there's other people there, you'll do it not to be embarrassed. So that means essentially the pressure is motivating you to do something that you really want to do. You really believe in it. It's just you're lazy and yeah. Fine, you're a victim to other people's feelings and emotions. That's one type of pressure. That's not that bad. Sometimes it has a lot of value to it. But then there's things that you really don't want to do. You don't believe in it. You think it's not a good thing. There's a big difference between your first question and your second question. Not inviting this Jew for Shabbos, I don't think is a positive thing. The fact that you're going to put on a hat and jacket, okay, so now you have a question. So probably you should have a mincha and you shouldn't miss it. But you have to distinguish between pressure that's causing you to do something that you think is good and pressure that's causing you to do things that are alien to your belief system and alien to your soul and probably, probably alien to, uh, to your truth. 
I have lots and lots of questions. The, the, all these questions put me into the category of an apikairis. I have been told by some people in my community that I'm an apikairis. Will I be punished for asking these questions? Which really makes me ask a question about you, Rabbi Jacobson. You're addressing a crowd. <laughs> Who gave you a right to ask questions on me? Now you're an apikairis. When addressing a crowd and putting forth questions, aren't you instilling doubts in people's minds? And pardon my chutzpah, but in claiming that you know the truth, what gives me a reason to believe you? (laughs) Okay, these... (laughs) Well, I'll start from the last. And that is, uh, nothing gives you a reason to believe me. You shouldn't believe anything I say, which is why I usually try to back up what I say with sources. If you've listened to the classes, you know I do that pretty often. In terms of, in terms of asking questions puts you in tapikaitis, I, I really don't think so. I mean, I'll tell you, I think it's a mistake that many of us make. And that is that questions are evil and that people that ask questions are terrible people. The human mind was created by God himself in a way that it is curious, it's inquisitive, it asks questions. This world is filled with challenges, this world is filled with questions. The whole culture of Yiddishkeit is based on questions, debates, refutations, arguments. The greatest G'dayli Yisrael from beginning of time till today never shied away from any questions. They never felt that questions were evil. There are questions that are coming just for the sake of asking a question. That's what's called unhealthy cynicism. You're just being cynical for the sake of being cynical. In other words, you're not searching for an answer. You're not searching for truth. You're just trying to make a point. You're angry. You're upset. You're frustrated. You're annoyed. And then any answer will just invite another question. So then sometimes those debates are really useless. But when somebody has a genuine question, they're wondering to crush it, to destroy it, is pointless. And I don't think it's right, it's wrong. Let me put it very simply. If a youngster, a young boy, a young girl, a young man, a young woman, or whatever age, has a question on a very fundamental truth of Judaism, they come and they ask their father the question, their mother, their teacher, their rabbi, their Rosh Hashiva, their mashgiach, whoever it may be, a person in the community. And you look at this person and you say, a Jew doesn't speak like this. You don't ask such questions. We don't ask questions. We believe. I want to ask you an honest question now. By saying that, did you eliminate the question? By saying that, will he not have the question ever again? And he will now have pure faith? Well, Okay, so the fact that yeshivas do that doesn't mean that it's a successful thing to do or a right thing to do, right? I would say to the contrary. I'll go as far as saying from my experience with this, it's actually the other way around. When this boy came to his rabbi or his teacher or his parent and asked a question, he was 50%. He had a 50% question, maybe there is an answer, and 50% chance that there's no answer. Once you tell him, You're not allowed to ask such questions. You know now what he thinks? A hundred percent is no answer. By telling him that, you made this fakus in his mind. At least before he thought, 
Maybe somebody will have an answer. Now he's convinced that nobody has an answer. Because here he went to a man of authority, an educated man, who's supposed to know, and all he could say is, A Jew doesn't speak like this. Now, if somebody doesn't have questions, there's no mitzvah to instill questions in somebody's mind. There's no mitzvah anywhere to bring people together and say, here, let me raise some serious questions. A person doesn't have questions. They don't have questions. Wonderful. But we're talking about hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people who have questions. And just to dismiss their questions as stupidity or dismiss them as doing something wrong is convincing them that Judaism is based on blind, irrational, cultish faith. And sometimes they grow up and they look the part, they do everything externally, so to speak Jewish internally, they don't even have a suffix that maybe it's right. They don't even have a suffix, they dismiss it with such easiness when they open up to you. So that's why I think that uh, it's, it's, it's important, it's holy, it's Jewish, it's wonderful to address questions. And if I don't know a question, I could say, I don't know. I can ask, I can research, and so forth. And then there is a certain place where the mind says, last week we spoke about pain and suffering. There's some times where the human mind must acknowledge its limitations. And that's also rational. That is also rational. That's what, uh, that's what I think. So what is an apikairis? That's a good question. <laughs> huh? First of all, you have to know a lot. That's true, right? I once heard from, uh, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that, uh, I heard this once from a Mashabbos at a Fabrengen. He said that a Yid once came into uh, his father-in-law, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz. And uh, the Rebbe was talking to him about Yiddishkeit. So he says, Rebbe, Rebbe, wrong man, wrong person. Ich bin an apikoiris. So he told him in Yiddish, he said, von knaken semitschkes, vetmenischken apikoiris. Meaning sitting and uh, cracking sunflower seeds, eating flun, f- sunflower seeds. Huh? Papitas, yeah. That got in him. That doesn't turn you on into an apikoidus. No, to be an apikoidus, you have to be very well-versed, very well-educated. The Rambam in Hilchis Truva, the Rambam in his Mishnah Torah in Hilchis Truva, I think it's in the third chapter, goes through the fundamentals of Jewish faith. And when somebody rejects them, he defines there what an apikoidus is, what a min is, what a kaifer is, and so on and so forth. But let's understand, if somebody is searching... If somebody is asking, if somebody is wondering, if somebody is trying to understand, if somebody says, I have read this here and here, I have been indoctrinated, there's a lot of indoctrination going on. I have been indoctrinated in high school, this professor told me this, this book told me this, this website told me this. Not to address it, say you're an apikoidus. You're guaranteeing that Itaka remains that way for the rest of his life. So yes, there are definitions of apikaitis in Allah, and I think we also shouldn't throw the word, word lightly. Today, people, if somebody doesn't follow my pattern, you're an apikaitis. This is kfira. You don't sing my song for the it's kfira. You're sitting in my seat in shul, it's kfira. Suddenly, things that nobody would even entertain that have to do with heresy become heresy. There's, a, there's no afkaitis in Judaism. There's things that are apikaitis, 
There's things that are not a precursor. Somebody asked me a question. If uh, he doesn't believe, in his research, he doesn't believe the Zayar was written by Rabbi Shimon Bayechai and his students. Okay. His, his people in the Shul told him he's an Apikaitis. Am I an Apikaitis? So I wrote back to him, you're not an Apikaitis, you're just wrong. <laughs> you're not an Apikaitis. Apikaitis. Rabbi Yaakov Emden also, there were great people who held so. It's an Apikaitis. It's true. Most of the greatest Mekobalim, including the Arizal, the Vilnagon, the Balatanya, and so on, and the greatest of the great, felt that the Zoyars, uh, the, the way they speak about the Zoyar, was the Zoyar came from the generation of the Tanoyim. Okay, but there was an argument about it. There was an argument about it. So it's an argument. Not everything becomes Kfir and Apikursus. So the Rambam and Hilchis Truva goes through those things. Somebody who, even in the Rambam, the Rambam says, if you believe, the, if somebody who says there's no God, that's a definition of apikursus, of heresy, of minus. And then he says, somebody who believes that God has a body is also apikursus. So the Ravid, the Rabbeinu Avram ben David, writes on the Rambam, he says, people better than the Rambam believe that God had a body. I'm explaining to you, even in such an issue, there are debates in halacha. There are debates in halacha. There were G'dayli Yisrael, we have a song, Hashem is there, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. There were G'dayli Yisrael who said that's not true. Hashem is not everywhere. Hashem is not everywhere. It's known as this idea of Tzimtzum Kipshutai. When Arizal speaks about Tzimtzum, that God withdrew himself, it was literal. Okay, it's true. The whole school of the Baal Shem Tev rejected that. But there were great G'dayli Yisrael, Mamish, truly great G'dayli Yisrael. You have Rebam Nuel Chai Riki, was one of the G'dayli HaMakabalim, he has a sefer called Mishnah Chassidim, Yerushalavav. He felt so. The Vilna Gon has a commentary on Sifra Ditzniyasa. A portion of the whole Tzimtzum is Kipshute. Today somebody would say it, right? Say, Apikaitis Arois. Not everything is Apikursus. There's disagreements, there's different ideas. Hashgacha Pratis is a debate in Jewish history. Is there divine providence on every single leaf? So I know Yom Tev Erlich and Avram Say that there is divine providence on every single leaf. Right? Uh, a flake of snow, everything. This was the famous shit of the Baal Shem Tev, And many Rishonim, and many Rishonim, and it became universally accepted among the Jewish people. The Rambam and Meir Nevuchim has a different perspective. Now it's true that Balatanya's son has a sefer called Derech Chaim, to show that even the Rambam agrees with that, this shit. But, but the point is, there have been different perspectives about th- fundamental things like divine providence. On a person, everyone says it's Ashgach protest. The question is, is there Ashgach protest on an ant, on an individual ant, an individual frog, an individual fish, an individual leaf? The Baal Shem Tev taught that every single detail is orchestrated, and so forth. My point is, we cannot use the word apikiris freely, just because you hold a certain position, there's, there's, there's a system in Judaism, there's Torah Shabbat Shabbat, there's Torah Shabbat, there's Chilukadeus, and so on and so forth. I don't think somebody who asks a genuine question should ever, ever be given such a name. It's counterproductive, and it's not true. I was taught in yeshiva that scientists don't know anything. <laughs> they just make up stories in order in order to justify their frivolous lifestyle. Today I grew up and I see that it's not true. <laughs> Scientists know lots, lots of things. 
And that puts great doubts into my mind. Okay, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, you're, you're, a wonderful issue you're addressing. We make a mistake. This is, this is a mistake I believe that we make. We are threatened by science for absolutely no good reason. The definition of science is the human search for truth. How can truth be threatened by the search for truth? It's one of the most ridiculous and absurd ways of educating children by telling them, the definition of Yiddishkeit and God is one definition, truth. If Yiddishkeit ever becomes something but truth, it's not worth the piece of paper or parchment that it's written on. There was once a famous uh, description, uh, a, 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 a cynical young Jewish woman goes over to her uncle who's very, very religious and very, very uh, cultish. And she says to him, if you had to choose between God and truth, who would you choose between? What would you answer? <laughs> and of course the uncle says, what's the question? Of course God. <laughs> now, if that's the definition of God, anything but truth, what is it worth? Somebody came to me after one of the classes and he said, I don't know why you're giving all these classes. Amuna means belief. How long does that take to explain? Ten, ten shiurim. Amuna means belief. So I said, and if you would have grown up in a Christian home, what would have you believed? What would have you believed? Not what they taught you in the home? He says, you're right. So I said, so then, so what does Amunah really, so Amunah just means to repeat that which they told you, even though you're not sure it's true. So why do you believe it? He says, that's what Amunah means, that you believe it anyhow. So I said, now that's apicursus. <laughs> now that's real apicursus. You don't mean it, you don't mean it, but you don't even think it. Now what you're telling me is, I know it's not true. Amunah means saying something is true, even though you think it's not true. Or you highly doubt it's true. That's called a munna. This is a kinderspiel. It's absurd. It's so superficial. And yet people are, are, are trained to learn Gemara for hours and hours a day. The whole Gemara, if a person doesn't have the Yisaitis of a munna, the Gemara is worthless. Mishnayis is worthless. The mitzvahs are worthless. The halachas are worthless. But like a parrot, they say they have a munna when they really don't even believe it's true. That's a tragedy. Part of this mistake is suffering from an inferiority complex and a lack of confidence that truth should ever be afraid of truth, of the search of truth. Torah was never, is never, and will never be threatened by science. Not only that, it celebrates science. It appreciates science. The first scientist in history was Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was the first scientist who started to ask questions. How? Where, huh? Exactly. Where did it come from? How did it come from? He was the first man to analyze biology, astronomy, cosmology, and so on and so forth. And where did it lead him to? It led him to create the great. It led him to create the greatest revolution and renaissance in humanity. What did Avram do for that? He broke every Salem. It's not just he broke every physical Salem. He broke every 
every conceptual getchke. What's a getchke? Getchke means azoyizus. Azoyizus. That's called a getchke. The Ishbitzer writes in Me'ashalech, Elekeim ha'seicha lo yisasalach. Machzech nishtan oiz gigosinim got. You put him into a box, azoyizdas. That's a getchke. The whole, the whole reason Yiddishkeit is here is because Avraham Avinu didn't accept the status quo. He asked questions. He was searching for truth. So to believe that Judaism is threatened by science, the person has a very, very impoverished perspective of Judaism. I know there was a Jew. He grew up in a certain community in Brooklyn. He was nine years old in 1969 when, in July, Neil Armstrong and his colleagues landed on the moon. He asked his Rebbe in Yeshiva the next day, we say in Kiddush Lavana, just like I dance in front of you and I can't touch you, nobody should be able to touch me harmfully. He says, how can they say in Kiddush Lavana, and we said it this month, when they just landed on the moon, touched the moon, planted a flag on the moon, took pictures from the moon, one small step for, uh, for man, one giant step for mankind with all the Shinui and Eschayas. So what did his teacher tell him? He said, the Goyim invented it. Hollywood made a production, it never happened. Lohadam, it never happened. They invented it and this is what they do. It was a conspiracy of them, with its, whatever, some other groups and together. No, this is actually the Misa. I'm not making up the Misa. Now, I have no issue that the teacher was confused by the question. It's a good question, even though the answer is a pretty simple answer. What the Nusach in Kiddush Levana means is, Usually when you're doing Kiddush Levana, you cannot touch the moon. So it's not such a difficult question to answer. But what he could have done, what he could have done is, he could have said, you know what, I'll answer you. Why do you have to tell him something? Anyway, this boy said, he was nine years old, he says, I knew that he lied. And from that day on, I was convinced that every word coming out of his mouth and anybody that looks like him is a lie. So today he's 55 years old. He has a big, beautiful, beautiful family. But in his consciousness, he is convinced that any word that comes out of a man who looks anything like his teacher is absolutely not true because he saw that there's absolutely no intellectual integrity. You know how damaging that is for education? When Yiddishkeit becomes anything but the truth, and we feel that we have to hide the truth to protect our kids, what are you raising them towards? You're raising them towards Yiddishkeit, Yerushalayim, which you don't believe is true. So why are you sacrificing to maintain it, to hold it up? Stop working so hard. (laughs) We don't have to protect our children from truth. The whole Torah was given in order to shear truth to articulate truth, to search for truth, to discover truth as best as humanly possible, and with Torah even more than what's humanly possible. So therefore, science is never, never, uh, never an issue. But one thing you should remember, not every statement that a scientist makes is science. Just like not every statement that a rabbi makes is absolutely Torah. People have sometimes their own issues. Not every word that comes from Dr. So-and-so, PhD in science, is absolutely true. Scientists make mistakes. Scientists have their bias. 
Scientists are often indoctrinated. They speak about facts. Examine the facts, and you'll see that what they call a fact, they may be calling a fact, but it's based on some speculation. And the truth is that science, by definition, can't speak of truth. What all science can speak of is, science says, based on the knowledge that we have today, this is the best theory available today to explain this and this phenomenon. Can they tell you that in five years, and ten years, and a hundred years, that will not, by definition, if a scientist speaks in absolute terms, he is leaving the world of science and entering into the world of fundamentalism. So I think it's important, it's important to, to mention that. And I should just add that the Rambam in Hilchis Yisodiyah Torah Perek Beis says that the only way to be Mekayim the mitzvah of Ava and Yira, of loving Hashem and fearing Hashem from the Rambam's perspective is by studying God's world. That's what the Rambam says in Hilchis Yisodiyah Torah Perek Beis. I would just add one, I think, interesting point. And that is, not only is Torah not threatened by science, Torah actually celebrates science. Because what Torah is telling you is, that the more you will dig into science and physics, the more you will find God. So what Torah is telling you is that science will bring you to places that are extraordinary. Because it's essentially, and therefore it sees in science infinite wisdom. It sees in every cell infinite wisdom. It sees in every molecule infinite wisdom. It sees in every grain of sand, in every unit of DNA, the infinite wisdom of the divine. This world is a spiritual space. So not only is it not threatened by it, it actually celebrates it. Okay, another question. In one of your classes, you painted such a rosy picture of God. Of course, you ignored all the psukim you didn't want to address. For example, Kel Nekamis Hashem, Kel Nekamis God is a God of revenge. He takes revenge. You were saying Hashem never takes revenge. It keeps on saying, Kel Kana Hashem. He's jealous, he's vengeful. Every day in Kriyashma we say, V'chara af Hashem b'chem. Hashem is going to get angry at you. If I would get so angry, my mother would say, what are you getting so angry about? Relax, but with Hashem we have to accept it. Mm. Good questions, Rabbi Isai. Whoever sent in this question, it's a very good question. And you're not an apikaris, don't worry. <laughs> It's a very good question. I'm going to tell you a little Maisa that I heard many years ago from Rabbi Oyel Khan. In Dvinsk, there were two Rabbonim. Not just Rabbonim, two giants. I mention them often in my Sunday Shurim. You had on one side the Ursa Meach. He was from the Litvish, so to speak, Misnagdish Ashkenazic world. Rabbi Meir Simcha Akoyin of Dvinsk who was an absolute uh, great genius and mind. And the Rav of the Svar, the Hasidim was the Ragachava Gaon, the Sarah Torah, Rabbeinu Yosef Rosen. They were both Mamish Goine Hador, and Dvin, this little city of Dvinsk had both of them together as rabbis in the same, in the same era. Dar Samech passed away a few years before the Ragachava. Samech passed away in 1928. Ragachava passed away, Tainus Est, exactly 80 years ago, 1936. Tofur Sadek so you know, like in old Jewish communities, they used to uh, go to battle, who's greater? So once in Shul, after Meirev, there was a vikuach, a debate broke out. Ver is greser. In Yiddish, ver is greser. Dar is sameach, or the ditzofnos pameach, or the rakat shava. Who's greater? Who's bigger? 
So there was a kid there. He starts laughing through there. They're fighting, they're fighting for two hours. They're arguing. He's bigger, he's bigger. He's, uh. There's a little kid there laughing, laughing. So they call him over, they say, Vos lachst He says, I can't believe that adults should be so stupid. Say, what's the question? The Ursameach was, uh, was physically bigger than the Rakachava. The Rakachava was much smaller. He says, two hours, you're, you're arguing, that is Gresser. We all know the Ursameach is Asach, Asach, Gresser, with the Rakachava. So they look at the boy and they said, Nah, in Gashmias. in We don't mean bigger physically, we mean spiritually. He says, nah. yeah, it's just Pshatlach. Now you're telling me Pshatlach. Gresser is Gresser. Big is big. Don't start justifying and giving me abstract ideas. Now, from the child's perspective, he's right. Gresser is Gresser. No question. But we all understand that he's wrong. Because Gresser is Nish Gresser. When you're five years old, Gresser is Gresser. If you'll offer your three-year-old, your two-year-old, a one-year-old, a candy, or a little, or a little fire truck, or a check with $900,000 that's cashable, you know what he's going to choose. And from his perspective, he's right. The check is really worthless. Between you and me, we know he's right. <laughs> money comes and money goes. But we also understand that he's pretty wrong. The check is far more valuable. It depends on your paradigm. When we grow up with a very negative image of Hashem, and we do, a lot of us do, we see the Torah from that prism. Gresser means gresser. V'chara af Hashem means one thing. Kel Kana means one thing. Kel Nekamas Hashem means one thing. And I know it's true. Just like when we hear the word schar and Oynish. Just like when we... Just like when we hear the word schar and Oynish, when we hear the word punishment, as I spoke, I think I spoke about this in number four of Amunah, when we hear the word punishment, we associate it immediately with anger, vengeance, control, Somebody who's a freak, somebody who wants to, this, who's just can't get their life together, somebody who lacks manuchas and nefesh and so forth. It's therefore important for a person to develop a much more sophisticated and subtle language. I once opened up a Toldus Yaakov Yosef, from Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Akoyan of Pulna, the great student of the Balshemtiv. The Toldus Yaakov Yosef says, I heard from my teacher, listen to this. What does it mean when David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Kel Nekomes Hashem, Kel Nekomes Seifia? So listen to what the Baal says. And then you'll know how you have to read a Pasuk. The Baal says, why is David repeating himself? Kel Nekomes Hashem, Kel Nekomes Seifia. We got it the first time. He's a God of revenge. Okay, if you didn't hear me, I'll say it again. He's a God of revenge. Hashem, Hoifia, he appeared. Hashem. David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Hashem is Kael Nekomis, he's a God of revenge. Now you might think that Gresser means Gresser. Revenge means like we call revenge. You messed with me, I'll mess with you. You started up with me, I'll start up with you. So that you will remember me in Tatan's Tatnarain. 
Right? What they used to say, there's some mazakin the Vizendalavonev and the Lepton the Vizbagegan and then Eltabob and Ganeid, one of those. So the Dovid Amelech continues and says, you know, all these different types of curses, I'll knock out all of his teeth besides the one that hurts, right? <laughs> so he says, so, so David Amelech says, Kail Hashem. Now, lest you think, I mean the regular revenge, says the Baal Shem Tiv. David Amelech says, so let me explain to you. What's Kail Nekamas? What's God's revenge? He appears. And he tells a story. What's the story? Imagine somebody loves you unconditionally and they will do anything for you. They love you with every fiber of their being. There's only one issue. You're not aware of it. You can't see it. You're not in a space that you can see it. So you're convinced that they hate you. So therefore any opportunity that you could harm them, you harm them. Because you're convinced that they hate you. One day, one day, their love appears in your life. One day you discover how much they love you. Is there a greater nekama in the world? Is there a greater revenge in the world? It's not revenge, I'll get you back. Hoifia, how does Hashem take revenge from a person? Hoifia, He appears in the person's life. And when He appears in the person's life, and the person realizes, Ahafti eschem amr Hashem, Bonim atem l'ashem alekechem, Bni b'chayri Yisrael. When a person realizes the shame that they have, the sense of regret that they have, that is an experience that is very painful. So what's the nekama? The nekama is hayfiyah. I open up a sefer called Siach Sarfi Kodesh. I see a vart from the Kotzke Rebbe. Generally, whenever someone wants to say a vart, they don't have who to say it from, either the Chsam Seifer or the Kotzke. But this, you could look it up. It's there from the Kotzke. I'm not just quoting it. This is what he says. It says in Parsha Shmois that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to go to Mitzrayim to liberate the Jewish people. How long did Hashem argue with him? Rashi says seven days. First Hashem said, go, liberate the Jewish people. So what did he say? Me and I, who am I? I'm not for the job. Who am I? So Hashem says, I'll go with you. So what does Moshe say? Next excuse. I can't speak. So Hashem says, Me some pela adam. I give people the mouth. So what's his next excuse? They won't believe me. Hashem says, they'll believe you and there'll be miracles. What's his next one? Just find somebody else. So what happens next? Hashem gets angry at Moish. And he says, Your brother is going to come greet you. And Moish goes. How do we understand the story? Seven days, Rabbi Nishlam is trying to convince you to go liberate the Jewish people. You're arguing. Finally, enough! Geishon! That's how we learn. Then the Machoikas and Chazal of the Charoinov made a Roshim, didn't make a Roshim, Zvachim. Rashi brings it and so forth. Two opinions, etc. Obvious question. Imagine you want to take your child into your business. So you tell your child, you know, it's time for you to come into the business. Ten years in Kailal, it's time to get, get into the business. 
So he says, who am I? I can't. I mean, no, you're excellent. He says, but I can't communicate. You could communicate. But nobody's going to like me. They will like you. Just get somebody else. Just get somebody else. So you get angry at him. So he takes the job because his father got angry at him. So how committed will he be to the job? The whole reason you took the job is because your father got angry at you. The whole reason Moshe took the job was he never wanted it. Hashem got angry. He started to scream at him. So listen to what the Kotzke Rebbe says. He says, we don't translate the words right. We translate, Hashem got angry at Moshe. He hollered at him. He screamed at him. So he got terrified. He ran. He says, that's not what it says. He says, translate the words. Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe. Der Ebrish t'sotten hat angeheben brennen in Moshe. Meaning, the Rebbeinu Shalolam was deeply perturbed, pained by Golos Mitzrayim. Moshe was also. But Moshe still wanted to live his own life as a shepherd in his boidadus. Vayichar af Hashem b'Moshe. What Hashem did was, He made that his, his pain should start burning in Moshe's heart. Moshe should start feeling about the Jews oppressed in God. Mitzrayim like Hashem feels about it. Once you feel, you'll go. You can't speak. They won't believe you. There's other people. You go. When your heart is on fire, when somebody you love is in so much pain, you will find a way of doing it. That's what he says. Same words. So when it says in Kriyashma, if you could put your cell phones on vibrate, please. When it says in Kriyashma, what does it really mean? It means that everything that happens in the world is, Hashem wants that His passion should start burning in me. The way He looks at life, I should start looking at life. I should look at myself, my actions, my thoughts, my words, my power, my dignity, my love, my capabilities, like He looks at me. And even when what's called an oinish, what is it like we spoke then? It's always there for one person to help a person achieve his or her pristine, pristine glory. So I think, I think it's extremely important. It's a beautiful Misa that the very special Misa, the, the, the Balatanya was the Balkair in his, in his shul in Liyajna, in, Bel- in, in, uh, where's Liyajna, in, uh, Weiss Rusland. White Russia at the border of Belarus and Russia. And uh, he was the Balkaira. One year, it was Parshas Kisavai and he couldn't read for whatever reason. So there was another Balkaira. He had a son, a big tzaddik, the Mittler Rebbe, Reb Doiv Ber. After Kriyas HaTorah by the Teichicha, he fainted. He got so sick, he had a question. The doctor said he had a question if he could fast him Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, shortly after Kisavi, he got so sick, he wasn't sure he could fast Yom Kippur. So they asked him, you're, an, you're, you're a middle-aged man, you have heard Parshish Kisavi every year. Every year, your father reads it every year, why did you faint? So he said in Yiddish, he said, When the tata leint, When my father read, I didn't hear curses. Same text, same words. A similar taka, we're coming to Purim. 
The year his father passed away, the next year there was a balkaira for the Megillah of Purim. You know the minig and shul, you go out of the Megillah, you leave a few dollars for the person who read the Megillah. This is an ancient custom. So the Mittler Rebbe puts into the kasi, puts into the box a huge amount of money. For the person who read the Megillah, they say, why so much? He says, Azashena Maisa? Such a beautiful story. Azashena Maisa, he's an older Rebbe. You've heard the story dozens of years. His name, Adetatat Galaitis is given Ananda Maisa. My father read it was a different story. It's the same words, but what do you hear? What do you hear? And the truth is, this is the work of the Baal Shem Tov tried to do is expand people's horizons to be able to see Judaism in a far, a far profounder way. I'm supposed to cover 70 questions, right? I am very I am very annoyed by a certain law that I was raised with and it still drives me crazy maybe you can help me rabbi I'll tell you what it is I was taught that different parts of davening you're allowed to stop in different ways for example, Shemena Esra, you're not allowed to stop for anything. In the middle of Kriya Shema, certain things you're allowed to stop for. Not Baruch Hu, Baruch Shemai, Amen, but certain parts of Kedusha. Amen of Akela Kaddish, Psukadizim, you could stop for more blessings of Shema, you could stop for less. Who sat and actually invented all of these laws? That this part of davening, you could stop for this and not stop for this. This part of davening, you could say Amen. Here you can't say Amen. Here you could say Baruch Hu, Baruch Shmai. Here you could say Shmai. Here you could say Kaddish, but not Nagdishach, Yimloch, but not anything else. Come on. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry that you have been dealing with this all these years. But what you feel, what you feel to be very ridiculous and absurd, I think is one of the most romantic laws in Judaism. And I'll tell you why. If I was God, I would have said, I really don't care what you do in the middle of Pesukah de Zimra and Birchus Krishma. I mean, you're smaller than an ant, and to say that what you say or you don't say really matters is an extraordinary idea that Judaism believes that when you're talking to God, He is so fully present that if you turn away and you interrupt the conversation, it's actually hurtful. And the fact that there's different levels of davening, I think, is a very beautiful idea because it really is reflective of the fact that there's different dynamics in the relationship. And I'll give you a simple example. If you're having a conversation with your wife, you go out for coffee to talk about life, like every good couple in Muncie does every few days, once in 20 years. And it took 20 years to get you out for coffee. And you're sitting and you're talking. And of course, 60 seconds into the conversation, the phone rings, the text comes, the email comes, and what does he do? He picks up, he says, one minute, excuse me, one minute, he picks it up, right? It's not, it's not the best feeling. It's not the best feeling, but okay. You don't divorce him for that. You don't divorce. What happens if he's under his chuppah? He puts on the ring, oh, well, one second, hello... Really? $56,000? No, 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 no. $40,000. Okay. Libetabazu. Now I would say this is a problem. If in the middle of your chuppah, you can't not look at your text messages, 
we have a situation. You're sitting in the kitchen and schmoozing, you check your telephone. Okay, I don't think it's the best idea, especially when you're doing homework with your kids. But it could be forgiven. But when you're in a moment of intimacy, of oneness, and you check your phone, there's something inappropriate. There's something inappropriate. Shmoyne Esra, you're under the chuppah. Shmoyne Esra is a moment of intimacy. Kriyashma is very close to that. Psukha de Zimra is close to that. Karbonus is a different category. But it just shows us how Yiddishkeit believes and sees davening as a very real, real relationship. It's not even if you make the interruption. It's the fact that you actually hear it. It's the fact that you want to make the interruption. That's worse. It's not that you took the phone. It's the fact that you are capable of saying, you know what? I'm really somewhere else. Halacha is not only about law. Halacha is a law that reflects a wholesome spiritual reality. What should be my state of consciousness during Birchus Krishna? That a Baruch Hu, Baruch Shmoy doesn't speak to me at that moment. It can't get me. A, a Kaddish, 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 yeah. Now for most of us who really don't know what's the big difference between Kaddish, 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 Baruch Hu, Baruch Shmoy, it's just a law. But it's really a very powerful reflection of the idea that there's different states of consciousness and one doesn't pull me out of it. That's why the halacha says don't, it's not don't, don't interrupt. It's don't want to interrupt. There's now a state of connection where nothing else can interrupt. So I think that this halacha should not disturb you at all. I think it's a very, very, uh, very beautiful law. This is going to be a tough question, Rabbi, please forgive me. You're familiar with borderline? It's a very serious mental illness. People with borderline personalities are continuously anxious if people around them still love them. They keep on checking and testing people. Do you like me? Do you like me? And they drive people mad. Forgive me, but I see Judaism to be that way. God wants and needs the mitzvahs. Then they tell us it's for us to connect to God. He wants a relationship with us. He wants a relationship. All the details are so important. If we don't do it, he gets hurt or angry at us. This is what borderline people are like. They personalize everything. If something is not done the way they want it, it's because you don't like me. If you really would have liked me, you would have done it. They don't let people around them live or breathe. Anything that they don't do according to every detail that they ask for is an insult against them. People are always walking on a tight rope around them. Otherwise, they will this and this and this and this. Tell me, is this not what Judaism looks like? Huh? You're not an apicurus. You're not an apicurus. He's asking a genuine question. A genuine question. It all goes back, I think, to the issue we discussed in number four. There's two ways of looking at Judaism. One way of looking at Judaism is you're essentially bad. You're a bad person. You're going to burn. But if you do everything I say and you follow the system, then we will redeem you. We will liberate you. Essentially, we're born with original sin. But that's not Judaism, that's Christianity. I think, I think, what Elio Anavi taught, what we spoke then is, it's exactly the other way around. You are unbelievable. Hashem loves you absolutely, unequivocally, unconditionally. Nothing will ever tarnish, destroy, 
diminish, harm, take away the love. The love is essential, it's impeccable. And He loves you for real. And you are, you're great. Your soul is awesome, your soul is perfect, your soul is divine. And that's who you really are. In order to give you an opportunity to be able to live with that love, to be able to breathe in that relationship, to be able to live with your greatness 24-7, that's what Torah and mitzvahs are. I don't think you should see it as him saying, if you don't do this, you're going to hurt me, I'm going to get angry at you, and you would keep on dancing around him. I don't think, I think that the very paradigm has to be challenged. The person added, and all of these details are absolutely ridiculous. I learn Shulchan Aruch, and I get migraine headaches about how anybody can believe that God really cares about so many details. Well, I want to thank everybody who asked for being very honest and candid. It's refreshing. And you, you can even sign your name, don't worry. But they, most of them did not, only their first names. Let me tell you something about details. You know, I think it's important. I once uh, had to send an email to somebody. I was in a big rush, a very big rush. So you know what I did? Huh? So what I did was, I decided I'm going to leave out the period. I'm going to leave out the period. And I sent the e what do I have to do? Goldberg at gmail.com. I'll take out the dot. At gmail come. Anyway, a few weeks later, I get an email from this person upset. Why didn't you answer me? Why didn't you this? So I did answer you. I was just in a rush. So I took out the dot. It turns out that without that dot, the email somehow didn't go. Why? It's a dot. The answer is what looks like a dot from the front end is not a dot at the back end. The way email works all the computer uh, geniuses can explain to us. It's not the dot. The dot is the programmer's easy way of making stupid people like us, instead of having to write out codes that are very complex, the dot represents a major code. Anybody who delves into the depth of Judaism knows what you call a dot is really reflective of very profound truths. You could make fun of details if you don't appreciate details. But take the world of biology. Most of our, all of our DNA, not just of people, of animals, of all living organisms is the same. So what's the difference between, a, you could have been a bee. You know that the DNA of a bee and my DNA are almost identical. Almost completely identical. What makes really the difference? In people themselves. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny. Every cell from 40 trillion cells has billions of units of DNA and a tiny variation in one unit has major consequences on every level of the human being's life and distinguishes one person from another person and people from other types of creatures and so forth. So we all understand that details are quite important and quite significant. The question is which details? You're looking at Shulchan Aruch, just a heap of details, etc. Well, you appreciate that every dot really is reflective of great, grand, 
deep truths and ideas philosophically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and so forth, I think it will help you a lot. Rabbi Jacobson, you used a metaphor to say that Hashem loves us unconditionally, like a parent will never tell a child that he can only be part of the family household if he adheres to the rules. Even a child who breaks the rules will never be unloved. And the same is true with Hashem. He'll never ever reject a Jew and never punish us just because he's angry. I must note, unfortunately, my entire life I was exactly in such a house that you said doesn't exist. I was constantly being told that I'm not welcome. I don't belong there because I don't go along with the crazy and unconditional abuse that I had to suffer. My father had even more than one serious talk with me and he told me I cannot continue living in the house if I don't behave according to his abusive rules. I can only be in the house, eat at the table if I'm not making him trouble. I was thrown out of the house on a regular basis. I had to look for other places to sleep. My sister took me in but also on conditions. She told me that if I don't follow her conditions, I'll have to go back home where I was thrown out from. I ignored it. I was amazed. How can you say in a class in such a positive way that there isn't such a thing that parents love their children unconditionally? I was thinking, wow, is he serious? Is this really the situation? I had a very different experience. I was abandoned by my parents and I feel abandoned by Hashem. Well, All I can tell you is I'm sorry. I should have qualified. I thought I did, but maybe I didn't. That there are homes, I think I did, right? I usually do. That there are homes that are really not this way. And uh, my heart goes out for you. And uh, I don't have a lot to say. It's it's, it's very horrible. All I could say is there's a Pasuk that David HaMelech says in Tehillim chapter 27. We say it throughout the month of Elul and Tishrei, Ki avi v'imi yazavuni v'ashem yasveni. My father and mother abandoned me, and Hashem took me in. When we did not have as children the experience of unconditional love from parents, it's very hard to live a functional and wholesome life, because if you feel unloved and unworthy, and valueless, you cannot give love to other people. You're always taking, you're always searching for somebody to validate you. And what we have to do, what such people have to do is really, it's, it's, it's very challenging, but you have to be able to open yourself up to God's unconditional love to you. Because even a father and a mother, as close as they are to us, do not have the keys to destroy the essence of our souls. They can make us suffer if they are dysfunctional and sometimes crazy or whatever, immoral. But nobody, nobody can destroy the core of your soul and the core of your value and the core of your dignity. You're a chelik elikam imal mamish, you're a piece of Hashem, and that nobody can take away from you. And no circumstances will ever take that away from you. And each day, try to work, try to meditate, try to dive and open yourself up to this, to really be able to accept this, to accept this in yourself. And I'm so sorry to hear this. If I could be of any help to you ever, please reach out to me. What criteria is there for someone to be a speaker <laughs> or represent true Torah Yiddishkeit? Why should I trust you about the basics of faith, especially in a public forum? There's so many different rabbis. They're all arguing with each other constantly. What about the rabbi who made recent statements about the Holocaust? She mentions, he mentions the name. 
How can I verify someone's authenticity? And if somebody is not authentic, what happens then? <laughs> it's hard for me to talk about myself, but I'll give you a few criteria. The first thing is, when a rabbi says something, you always have to ask him, three, when he finishes, if you're confused or you have a question, ask him a question, it should be just three words. What's your source? You will see different rabbis will respond in different ways. One rabbi will give you a look, which will basically say, how dare you? How dare you ask me for my source? First of all, you're 40 years younger than me. Second of all, you're 90 years stupider than me. How dare you? That's one rabbi. Another rabbi may not look at you that way. They may contain themselves, but they might tell you, you can trust what I said. I said it, you believe it. Both of these I would not accept as my rabbi. I'll tell you my type of rabbi. You ask him, what's your source? He smiles. He says, ah, finally I have somebody who's interested. And he takes out the safer. He says, I'll get back to you. I'll show you tomorrow. I'll show you in a week. I'll call you, call me, whatever it is. In other words, he's not arrogant. He is a humble student of Hashem. The most important quality of a leader and a rabbi is he's a humble student of truth. He doesn't own the information. If somebody starts owning information, be very, very suspicious. That's number one. Number two, no rabbi is above the law. When somebody becomes above the law, it's dangerous. Popes are infallible. Jews are fallible. You know what fallible means? We make mistakes. Jews make mistakes. If somebody is not above the law, the Huh? Jewish law Jewish law tells us that much of civil law we must obey. So that's also Jewish law. Civil law in most situations is part of Jewish law. You understand? So nobody is above the law. When somebody becomes suddenly above the law, in other words, we don't ask questions on them. They don't have, they don't have a Shulchan Aruch. They don't have a God. They don't have a Torah. They don't have morality. Now, I don't know if I'm in a cult or not in a cult. So you have, you're allowed to ask questions. And I would just say one more thing, and this is, I've always told students of mine who have become Balei Tshuva, who have returned to Judaism at a later stage, I think it's important. When you come back to Yiddishkeit at a later point in life, there are usually people, men, women, rabbis, rabbitsons, teachers, who influence you, who inspire you. And they become your intermediary, so to speak, between you and God. Now you grow up a little bit and they may do something or say something that will be very disappointing. And your whole relationship with Yiddishkeit is sometimes compromised because they were the ones who created the relationship. And it's important to remember, we want to learn from people. We want to look up to people. We want to be inspired by people. But every person has to have their own relationship with Hashem. The Majid Rebbe writes, Anoichi Hashem says in the singular, not in the plural. Why doesn't it say in the plural? In Kriyashma we say, Ani Hashem, Eschem. You're speaking to all of the Jews, four million Jews. Shmayis Anoichi Hashem, no, Hashem Rashi asks the question. The Medrash asks the question. So he says Hashem is saying an important idea. 
I'll say it in my own words. Let's say Khalila, I find out tomorrow. I find out tomorrow that there's three, four million Jews in New York. Right? And many of them or all of them are absolute con artists. Do I start putting on tefillin tomorrow? It's me and you. We look up to teachers, we learn from teachers. But teachers never substitute your own life. They cannot live your life for you and they cannot represent your relationship to God. They can push you, inspire you, be role models, and they should be. But you have to have your own relationship. And therefore, even if you see a lot of corruption, people say, he's so corrupt. Okay, welcome. Welcome to the club. Shine, corrupt. He also says he ate Sahara. Fine, he got caught, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> a yid came to our Rav and he said, Rebbe, 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 I want a divorce. Rav very well nished. You know? It's just a joke. Rabbi, who, you know what I mean? You discovered America. You discovered that there's corruption. Of course there's corruption. The first brothers, Cain and Hevel, they already murdered each other. Cain, the first two brothers, they couldn't live in peace. The first brother killed his brother. That's what the Yetzirah, that's why you need Torah, that's why you need Yerushalayim. It's sad, it's painful, but why does it destroy your Judaism? Why does it destroy your Judaism? I was speaking at a convention of women. So somebody asked a painful question. There was a mice in Washington, D.C. with a rabbi in a mikveh with people who were doing garrison and he did very inappropriate things. With a, video, with a whole story. So he's sitting now for a few years. So, so the person was saying she teaches about, about family purity, and she says, people say, this is, uh, this is what a mikveh is, this is what happens, this is what a rabbi is. How could she answer her ladies? These are ladies that didn't grow up with Yiddishkeit. So I said, I would say, very, I would say the obvious. I would say, if anything, this story with the rabbi teaches you how important the laws of Tznius are, the laws of Yichud are. These halachas teach, when you see what happens, you see how vulnerable people are. Here is a rabbi, a good rabbi. I know him. A brilliant rabbi. A big Talmud Chachem, a Ben Torah. A smart fellow, a scholar, really a great scholar. Yet, people are very weak. They're very vulnerable. That's why, don't play, the the Chazal speak about Yichud, they speak about Sniyas, they speak about all of these things, and so on and so forth. They knew exactly what they were talking about because they were speaking to real people. If anything demonstrates how valuable these laws are, it's this. A yid from your rabbi from your shalayim once told me a gavaldik and my sister there was once a Polish tzaddik, a big tzaddik from Poland, an older Jew. He was already ninety, and he was a widower. He lost his wife, so they had a bocher who stayed with him in the house. And there was an old Polish cleaning lady who would clean the house. It was one winter night, and the boy had to go do something. So he tells this rebbe, he says, "I have to leave for twenty minutes. I'll be right back." And he leaves. He comes back twenty minutes later, and he sees this tzaddik. This rebbe is outside shivering, shivering from cold. He says, Rebbe, what happened? He says, I didn't want to stop you, but uh, I couldn't stay in the house alone with, uh, with the cleaning lady. It was inappropriate. So, uh, you'll forgive me, I have to tell you the story the way he told it to me. So he says, Rebbe, Rebbe, is I 90 year old? Is I an altayid 90 year old? You're an old, frail man, 90 years old. 
Ziz, Zibit Sekiralt, she's 70, and completely, completely, nothing doing. Rebbe, there's no Yichud here. So listen to what he told him. He said to him such beautiful words. He says, Ich mit mein Yetzahara in finif minut, ver ich jung und sie schein. With my Sahara, in five minutes, I become young, she becomes beautiful. So I told my student, that's an Erlichid. That's an Erlichid. This is not a Jew who doesn't have a Yetzirah. It's an Erlichid. With my Sahara, in five minutes, everything changes. This means a person knows what a person is. You know what a person is. You know who you are. I have a great fear of flying. Just the thought of booking a flight brings on symptoms of anxiety. When it comes to this issue, my emunah and betachin fly right out the window. So sometimes you do fly. Good. Does this put me in the category of a non-believer and an apikiris? Because I'm afraid of flying. No. <laughs> no. You're a believer, you're a fine, wonderful person. You just have a phobia of flying. Talk to somebody. It's fine. You're not, not every, I told you, not everything is apicursus. No, no, with a you're afraid of flying. It's a, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon. People are afraid of flying. You're not afraid of driving, even though statistically, there are 30 times or 29 times more car accidents than aviation accidents, but you're not fear of driving. So I don't think this has anything to do with Amunah and Betachin. This has to do with certain realities of flying. I think in the air, we realize how vulnerable we are, especially when we taste the food on the airplane. <laughs> and, uh, and we get afraid. So I wouldn't worry, just these professionals who deal with this. I am not an expert on, on, uh, on, on fear of flying. I am also afraid of flying, but I do it anyway. And uh, you could talk to somebody. Okay, I think I'll take one more question, because it's late. I'll take one more question. In every dintaida, in every court case, we never listen to one side. We always have to listen to both sides before coming to a judgment who is right. Why is it that when it comes to faith, we don't say listen to both sides? If a billion people or more, including lots of very smart, genuine and honest people, believe in something different than what I was raised, maybe they're right and my tradition is wrong. Maybe they have latched onto a certain aspect of reality that is true and I should know about. And since we're speaking here about issues of God's existence, which ism is true, etc. This is the most important issue in our entire life. What is true? Doesn't it make sense to investigate this in a real way and hear each side out in a way that is honest and gives them their best shot? Doesn't it make sense then to speak to the priest about Christianity, the Buddhist about Buddhism, the atheist about atheism, the agnostic about agnosticism, the Hindu about Hinduism, etc.? We got the point. Okay. You say, why is it that in a court case we listen to both sides and here is it that intelligent Jews shouldn't go and investigate, investigate the other side. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I'm not a, it's, it's, it's a very legitimate question. It's actually, it's actually a good question. It's an intelligent question, I think. My answer to you would be whoever you are. Oh, actually, I know you. <laughs> You're a great guy. You could. You could investigate. I don't think you have to investigate, but you could. And I'll tell you what I mean. You don't have to. I'm not saying you don't have to because I'm afraid. 
the little reading that I did, I didn't do extensively, the little reading I did, it's very obvious and it's not hard to discover this truth, that any religion in the world, there are thousands of religious sects and there have been, I think we know around 15,000 religions. I know most of us can probably name only three or four or ten, but I think there's approximately around 15,000 religions and I can't name them. But I believe somewhere there, maybe a little more. There's a common denominator in all of them. And the common denominator in all of them is, ask yourself one question. How easy was it to fabricate this religion? In other words, let's say it's true. Maybe yes. But how easy would it have been to fabricate it? If somebody wanted to invent it, how hard would it be? How easy would it be? Go back to the beginning and you'll see that all of them originate with one human being's testimony. Or maybe a few human beings' testimonies. This doesn't mean they're liars, but it means that if they wanted to lie, the religion could have been fabricated, and then people chose to embrace them. As I mentioned, I think in class number six, there's only one religion in the history of civilization that has a different story completely about its genesis, and ask yourself the question, how easy would it have been to fabricate Judaism? Would have it been easy to fabricate Judaism? And how easy would it have been? Or how hard would it have been? And as we discuss then, I'll refer you back to number six at length, you will see that it would have been quite a difficult task because whoever invented it somehow had to convince millions of people that all of their ancestors saw God, saw Moshe being chosen as a prophet, and transmitted it for generations. In other words, if it was invented, you would have to have millions of people joining a conspiracy, which may have happened, but it's far. So you can investigate your whole life. Yes, you can go to Christianity, you can go to all the sects of Christianity, but they'll all tell you it goes back to one man, Yashkila Isaiah Ish, who had a story, <laughs> had a story. There was once a Jewish student, he wrote to me, he was in college, so uh, the the the... The professor asked, the Christian professor, he says, what's your opinion of immaculate conception? So he says, if your daughter came home and said that, what would you say? That's my opinion. I I don't think I could translate that in Yiddish. So you can investigate, but the point is, the point is, it becomes very obvious what we're dealing with. So I don't think, I don't think that when somebody says he's not spending years investigating Christianity, it means that he's hiding from the truth. I don't think so. The question should be one question. If Torah is true, if you can establish beyond a reasonable doubt that Torah is true, then automatically Christianity is not true because part of the truth of Torah is that a Torah hazois loitehimachlefes. God is not making a new covenant, rejecting the Jewish people, making a new covenant. So the moment you accept Torah is true, automatically you already investigated Christianity. So that's another very important point. You can't have a truth and then say the opposite is also true and let me go investigate it. If this is true, this is true. Right? Do you get what I'm saying? I think, I think this is a pretty logical point. Another point, another third point to make is, I think I mentioned this, from my knowledge, maybe I'm wrong, but from my knowledge, I don't even know of one case that a Jew converted 
from Judaism to Christianity, based not on coercion, not on social pressure, not because they needed food or money and Jews for Jay offered it for them, not because they needed a job in a university, not because they wanted to be part of the majority, but purely because of ideology. They studied their whole life Judaism and they felt there's something missing and in Christianity, Christianity I can find it. I know a Jew, I can tell you his name, his name is Weinreich, Gavriel Weinreich. It's a tragedy. His father founded YIVO. You know what YIVO is? Ivo is the institute for the Yiddish language. He founded it in Vilna. His name was Weinreich. His brother wrote one of the best Yiddish-English dictionaries. Osa Weinreich. Died young. Gavriel Weinreich is an Episcopalian priest. A Galach in Michigan, whom I have spoken to in Yiddish. He speaks a better Yiddish than most Skvere, than most Vizhnitze, than most Lubavitches. He speaks... He speaks a perfect, impeccable literature Yiddish. As I remind Yiddish. A glancing in Yiddish. A mechayet zaharen. So, he sent me his book. He wrote a book. So here's a Yiddish-speaking Galach who lives today. So I asked him. I said, Reb Gavriel, it's your father was one of the biggest Yiddishisten in Eastern Europe before the war. Vi kumtas that his son is a Galach. So he tells me, he tells me, Ich hab gesucht Gott. I searched for God. In my house there was Yiddish culture, but there was no God. There was Yiddish culture, there was no God. I found it there. I, I, I found it there. Fine. So you have an, a Jew who didn't have who was educated with nothingness, with emptiness. But find a Jew, not in Spain because of a fear or pressure, who willingly, ideologically decided this is the place to go. Not one. What about the other way around? You can't count how many. All the way from the earliest generations. I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's important. I should add one more thing. This doesn't mean that in other religions... There are no fine ideas. Much of Christianity comes from Judaism. Much of Islam comes from Judaism. There's some nice ideas. In fact, even other religions or philosophies that were invented by people. The Mekabalim always say, There's no good without bad. There's no bad without good. There may be gems and wonderful ideas that are rooted in Torah somehow that exist in different philosophies and different cultures and different religions. And I would add, and we'll conclude with this, what's going to happen? When the Rambam writes in Hilchus Molochim, the Navi says that when Mashiach comes, Az Epoch, Al Kola Amim Safa Brura, Likre Kulum Beshem Hashem, Laavde Kulum Shechem Echad. All the nations will become one. Vahaya Hashem Lamelech, Al Kola Aret, Bayemuyi Hashem Echadush Mechad. How do we understand what is going to happen? Basically, seven billion Goyim non Jews are going to come here to the Beis Medrash. They say, we want to be Jews. So Shabbos after Shachas, they're going to start eating herring. The Buddhists are going to drop dead immediately. Just from looking at the kugel and the kishka, they're going to die. They've been fasting for 55 years on mountains. This is what it means? They're going to start having Malava Malkus and then Toyameha. So what does it really mean? What it really means is, it really means something really very beautiful and profound.
every religion in the world, every religion in the world has Ra in it. It has elements that are either false or destructive or ridiculous, but also every religion in the world, or almost, has Toiv in it. It has sparks of goodness, noble ideas, sparks of godliness, and in fact, many of them have motivated many people to do lots of good things till today. Just like many of them have motivated and still motivate lots of people to do a lot of nasty and cruel things. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes is as follows. Every religion is going to discover those nekudos in which they are rooted in Torah. And suddenly they're going to find their kinship with Torah, with Yiddishkeit, because they're going to discover within themselves those components which are a reflection of Torah and are rooted in Torah and are connected to Torah. They will have the courage and the clarity to discard, to discard those that are not. And then all of the nations will be able to be able to unite as one because there will be the oneness that will unite them all. Have a good night and a wonderful week. And thank you for all the questions. Uh, I think we have to. I don't, I don't know one time, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. For the Santa Shilas, huh? Well, I think in court, you're saying one thing, you're saying another thing. I have to determine who's right, right? If I could determine that one person is true, and that automatically means... If a person wants to go investigate the other side, he can investigate the other side, but we know where the other side comes from. We know enough to establish something. We know enough that the origin comes from one person who invented it. We know. No, they say it. Nobody argues with that. That nobody argues with. Nobody argues that it was more than one person. That everybody says. So you want to investigate further? You could, but that's, that's, that's pretty powerful. There's no religion in the world who claims that there's more than one person who's responsible for it. Here it's Muhammad, here it's Yashka, sometimes it's a few people, but that's it. So it's not, it's not, it's not like they're saying something else and we're denying it and now we have to investigate. We agree with them. And they agree with us also. Christianity and Islam agree that Matan Taira happened. They just say... That God changed it. So I once asked them, he did it publicly the first time. Why didn't he change it publicly? Well, it's not fear, right? Huh? I said it. You want to change it? They, every Christian, a real Christian, a real Muslim, believes in Chumash. So he believes in Matan Torah. He believes in Moshe Rabbein. He believes in Tayyag Mitzvah. Elamai, they say. Then he chose Muhammad. Then he chose Yoshka. And he changed. He made new things. So it's interesting. The first time, everyone was there. The second time was private. This is how truth is communicated. I tell one thing to the whole world, to millions of people, and then uh, to a friend, and everyone has to believe him. So I think an honest person realizes this and says, well, they all agree with Matan Taita. Now I have to believe them that Hashem changed it. And whom am I believing? One person. I'm not believing three million people. How do you compete? So I think it's extremely intelligent. I don't think it's non-intelligent to say. You, we know enough about the other side. What's this not checking? If they would say there's a mass revelation, there's millions of Christians who saw it, fine. We don't have that. They claim it was one person.
who changed everything that they believe. And it's not that they don't believe in Matan Torah. Remember, they believe in Matan Torah. They believe every, if you're a real Christian, the Old Testament, of course. I'm talking about real Christians. I'm not talking about people who don't believe. Now, even with other religions who don't believe in Islam also, but even others, it goes back to one person. Here you have Buddha, here you have Joseph Smith, whatever it is, it's one person. Huh? You understand what I'm saying or not? Okay. If a person... Listen, the Sanhedrin had to know the, all the Avedizadahs in the world. Well, how do you compare it to a regular court case? Right, but I'm saying the premise is a wrong premise. Not that you're not going to look at both sides. We know about the other side enough to say you don't have to look at the other side. You understand? Huh? That's not what he's asking if it's halachically permissible. He's saying, how could you be a logically honest Jew where you didn't investigate other, investigate everybody and then say? That was Yisra's Mila. Let me put it this differently. He's going to come and say now, uh, this jacket is mine. Let's have a dentaira. Bring proof. Bring proof. Jews had matantaira. They had no sveikas. They had no doubts. Now the Christians are coming and saying, it happened, but God changed the law. You understand? I should start investigating something that I don't have a question in. Right. And you say it in even a regular court. Somebody's going gonna to start screaming, this jacket is mine. Right? We're not going to say split the jacket. <laughs> say bring proof. You have witnesses, you stole it, okay. So, what, so we'll, we'll ask the Christians. The Jews, you say it's a new religion, bring proof. Bring proof. Let God reveal Himself. We could listen, but they're not saying anything, huh? We're happy to listen, but the onus, the achrayis, is on them. Bring, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just that they're going to add. They're going to add that he changed the religion after a thousand, two thousand years. After two thousand years. Fine. I'll listen. Right. Bring, bring. 
You could listen. We listened. Yashka was a yid. He, he, he was a Talmud of, of the of the Tanoim. He was a Jew. He came to the Jews. We listened. Fine. We listened. Muhammad came first to the Jews. Yeah, he came to the Jews. He came to the Jews. He came and he said, God revealed himself to me. But he was Makhish the Nevu of Moshe. He didn't have the Gdanim of Anovi. So they didn't have what to accept. Yeah. Is there an issue with somebody going to a priest or whatever you want to call it to investigate as in about as in Unless if, if there's a productive reason, halachically it's fine. If not, no. It's not allowed. That's, that's, there was a year he passed away not long ago. His name was, uh, he was a professor, his name was Rabbi Amnuel Shachat from Toronto. So he used to debate Christians a lot. So he went, he specially studied Christianity. Rabbi Arya Kaplan, all of our Shalom, wrote books on it. So, well, these people studied, like the Sanhedrin studied, they had to know. It was for a productive reason. It's time to go research it. Go research it because you're searching. If a person has a shaila, fine. So he should ask. He should ask experts. I have a question. Didn't the Rambam also study all the languages? Well, the Sanhedrin had to know because they were down in all these in Yana. Yeah. Yeah. When the Torah says Acharam Lahatas, meaning if Rav say different, you have to go with Sarah. So why would the Meraglim, the Anusa Aydul, the Ruachos, they were killed and the two were right? Why? Good question. The answer is very simple. The Torah says you go after Rav Acharam when everything is true. <laughs> right. If it's a Sanhedrin Paschus, you don't have to put on Tefillin. There's no Acharam Lahatos. Meaning, when everything is truthful and everybody's giving their truth, which is really true, you go Acharam. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. The majority says it's daytime. I'm going to decide it's daytime. They're all delusional. They, they had a bad dream. It's my problem. When it's not true, it doesn't come into play. I don't think, I don't think they're crazy. Just like a lot of from Yidna. Why do they believe? Because they grew up that way. They're not crazy. Every person who believes is crazy. How did it start? Or crazy, or charismatic, or uh, spiritual, or mystical. Some people have a lot of personality. Remember, people like this. People want somebody that, that speaks to God and knows truth. Mention villain the chavman. Mention villain is the chavman. So that's how it happens. Yeah. You had by Jews a Maisel with Shapsitzvi. It wasn't so long ago. What happened with Shapsitzvi? Kemat. Kemat. Not Shkansa, but Kemat. What happened? Is it true by, that by the Igor only 3,000 Jews? No, once the base. The Eidim of Bahasra. 
Ba'edim of Bahasra only 3,000. With a lot of without aid and without asana, and also the rest just let it go. They were, they're not necessarily. There were millions of people there. there huh? What? Over a million people. There. Over three million people, probably. The women, not. The women, it says not. But the men were all uh, involved. Stats tell me he wanted to destroy. He told Moshe, if you leave me alone, I'll destroy them. So Rashi says, he told them, of course, don't leave me alone, so I won't destroy them. Wasn't uh, <laughs> When we hear V'chara Af Hashem, we compare Hashem to ourselves. I'm angry. I'll kill you, you understand? Grois is grois. What he's saying is, the Zelbe Pshat, he's saying, Abyssal Eidoleh. What does real anger mean? Real anger, imagine anger that's coming from complete self-control and complete love. Imagine, we don't have such anger. When I'm angry, I lost myself. Real anger means I'm hurt, I'm upset, I'm pained, I'm pained. And I want you to feel what I'm feeling. It's really posh to pshat. It's the oimik of pshat, do you understand? Same is true, nakama. We touch nakama. I lose control. I'm insecure. Yeah. You hurt me, I'll show you. I'll teach you a lesson. You don't start up with me. And I'll feel better that way. But imagine a person who doesn't need that. You can't. I'm completely wholesome. So what's the vart of nakama? The vart of nakama is I want to be in you. I want to appear in your life. Haifia. You should understand what you hurt. That's the pshat. First I said, I'm a kapshat. I want to close with the guru. He said, oh, from the Talmud of the Shet. The has two ways of Nekoma. One of them is like punishing. And there's another way of Nekoma, like the day of Mugashul. That somebody who threw yeah. a stone at a king. So, Kaya and Elisha wanted to kill him. Yeah. And the king says, no. Make him a servant in my uh, palace. And then upgrade him. Until he became one of the closest servants yeah. to the king. And when he realized who the king was, and he realized what he did to the king, it was the biggest, Nikama. The biggest Nikuma that ever could happen. And he felt so bad. The busha, the busha. That for this king, for this king. Hey, Told us Yaakov Yosef. Show him who I am when he'll see me. And you, you rebelled at me and, and, and you did That's the greatest in the king. So, he touched me to me. So, he has the whole year there. Kyle Kamadunoik. Kyle Kamadunoik. How? Should be the Nakoma, should be Mishoy Chaz. I'll say the closest beggar of Gazan. Mishoy Chaz the Chaliyadecha Kail Kama. Should be the Kama. Meaning, give him everything, and he should realize. Say a shame. That's a shame. After this, Kafir. After this, Kafir. After this, Kafir. On Sunday? Please add it, I mean. Well, you heard, you heard the types. 
I just I printed on only half, huh? Yeah, veganatros, yeah. Yeah, yeah, vegan. In terms of an argument to prove something, they have ten things that are uncertain. One thing doesn't become certain because of that. So just because. No, but if you're contradicting this, Christianity is the chmoide to matan teira. And if Torah is MS, Torah has Zois Loitehim Ochlefes. They can't both be MS. For what? Yeah, fine. That's something else. He's saying go investigate all the other religions. If Yiddishkeit is MS, then they're not. Doesn't mean there's no Nikudah in them that's MS. There could be a lot of Nikudahs that are MS, but we're taking the whole picture as MS. In every religion, there's Nikudahs of MS. There's Tayyid and Nikudahs there. You understand? But if Yiddishkeit is MS, Kipshutai, then there's Tayag, Mitzvah, Satayra, Zoyz, Leitai, Machlafis, etc. There's certain Yisaitis that will give my Matan Tayra. Psukim and Chumash, that you can't change. Haniglus Lonel of Anenu Ad Oilam Lasses is called Divriat Tayra, Zoyz. Now Yashka comes, Muhammad comes, and makes a new religion. He changes Mitzvahs, he adds Mitzvahs, abstracts Mitzvahs. Where did this happen? If a Jewish Navi would come and say it, he's a Navi Shekhar. If Yeshaya, Yirmiya, Yecheskel would say it, it would be Chayiv Misa. That's the halacha. They never said it. It's built into the Torah, of course. That's the whole point. Yeah, we did hear both sides. Yeah. That's also true. Yashka came to the Jews. He didn't go to the Goyim first. Muhammad came to the Jews. They all came to the Jews. Of course they came to the Jews. They came first to the Jews. Yashka was Jewish, not Muhammad. Yeah, he came to the Jews first. He was friendly with the Jews. They rejected him. He became a vicious anti-Semite. He came to the Jews, but they couldn't accept it. There was no Yisoyed. First of all, even if he would be a Novi Emes, a Novi can't be Mishanah Torah. Halachically, a Navi cannot be Mishana Torah. That's part of Torah. A Navi says that Shabbos is Sunday. He's Chayiv Misa. He's a Navi Shekhar. A Navi says you don't have to have a mezuzah anymore. You don't have to eat kosher anymore. Huh? Approve a Navi. Huh? Shah is one moment. One moment. One time, but that's it. If he says Shabbos is Sunday, La'olam Vad. Or there's no tefillin anymore. There's no bris milah. It's a Navi Shekhar. Because it's one of the Tayyag Mitzvahs. So that's this is all the other religions did. So the Jews heard them, and they said, sorry, you may be a nice guy, but... Uh, and they had a good time. Hashem gives the first Torah, Barabim, why the second Torah be yachit? Let him have another Matan Torah, and say, I changed my mind. I changed my mind. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Right. A court case, there's two sides. I don't know who's right. I listen to both. Here, they might that Matan Torah happen. That means that Christianity is wrong. Elamai, they say, Hashem changed his mind. Fine, prove it. Now, but there's other religions that don't believe in Matan Torah. Buddhism, this, they don't accept Matan Torah. So, but there it's not different. It's not that they believe in Matan Torah. Yeah. 
No, but you can you can have an akudas of emes that exists in different cultures. Right, of course. Yeah, emes. But emes could only be one. So right. That means of all of these is definitely is is is. It's only going to be one yeah. that, that is truthful. Unless they're, not, unless they're saying something that's not contradicting. It's not contradicting, yeah. Then it's yeah. fine. That but could be Emma's. But there's a lot of contradictions, yeah. So, so there definitely could be 14 and a half thousand religions that don't believe in No. No, so what? But you could trace them, you can trace them all back to one person, two people. You're telling me God revealed them... How could you compare? This we know is Emmas. Now I have a Shaila. Maybe I believe him, right? And that's going to undermine a certain Emmas, which I know is Emmas. So it can't be. So he's a Shaka. Because every Maimed Hashinah was real. It was real. Just like you know you're talking to me. But to the Jews, for the Jews, it's the best argument. They knew it. Or we Jew knew it. Yeah. He, we're not trying to convert anybody. We never try to convert anybody. So it's not an argument in general. It's just a comfort for ourselves. It's, it's not comfort. It's an MS. It's MS. No, why? I believe the people who were around Napoleon that Napoleon existed. It's an argument for everybody. He's arguing about the Jews, but it's an argument for anybody. Historical stories are an argument for anybody, even if I wasn't there. It's not only an argument for the Jews. It's a real story that happened. So, what, what did you say? What's going to be so you want I should accept something that could be one man invented it, and it's likely because it's only one right? So, al piseichel. Is it shayich? Is it shayich that four million people are lying and one person is not lying? Yes, it's shayich. I can't say it's not shayich. Could be four million people decided to lie. But no other area in life do we accept that. We usually have a mahalach. Then you're right, you're right. You're right, that's true, that's true. There's no absolute, absolute. There's no such a thing. There's no such a thing in the world. There's no such a thing in the world. We're talking reasonable, likely, and so forth. Huh? I was saying as the... Sadan Kuda. He says, but why did Hashem allow Christianity and Islam? He says that they all from all the way they introduced the concept of one God, the concept of tshuva, the concept of tzedakah. In the far eastern religions, you have mindfulness, meditate. But up for the Nikudas Hara, what the Nikudas Hatoiv is, um, um, we die Nikudas Hatoiv spiegeln sich up from Teure. Die Nikudas, was coming from Teure, wollen es gala werden, wird mehr als ein Achtes zwischen alle Völker. Wir holchu goyim lo eurech, ki beisi beis tfili yikori lechalam, und wir stehen alle Psyche. Ki mit ziehen teitze Teure, das war Hashem Yerushalayim. Also said there's only one God. They also believe in God. Yeah, but 
der Christen, der Musulmane, nicht der Christen. Wo kann der Christen? Ein sehr feiner Mensch. Du weißt nicht, was tut sich auf der Welt. <lacht> der Musulmane, nicht der Christen. Der Christen ist ein feiner. Ah? Ja, ich weiß, ich weiß. Was meint in der Tanach, der Bayesheni, was meint der Bayesheni? People that stayed wanted a fight. It was very different. No, no, no. There were three. You could leave. You could stay and pay taxes and be Mekayim Shavim Mitzvah B'nei Noyach. And you could fight. It wasn't... Uh... And even when they fought, they left one side open. Yeah, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing, yeah. Pleasure to have you. Nobody argued with the Rambam's Ikrim. They argued if there's 13 or 3. The Sefer Ikrim holds this 3 Ikrim, but they didn't argue that Chis HaMesim. Nobody argues with the Rambam. Some people said that Hashem did that before. Oh, oh, that you mean, that you yeah, mean. Oh, 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 that you mean, okay. The Ravid says, not that he, he says, so how, how That's a good question, that's a good question. And was universally accepted? That's a good question. Uh, right, what's, uh, what's right, right, right. So the Ravid gets upset with the term Apikorsis on this. Because he says, there were Jews who held it, he says, that's his lashon. The Ravid was spoke, wrote very sharply. But that the derech is that... Once the Gemara was sealed, you were here when we spoke about Tereshabal Pa. I think number seven, number eight, huh? Okay. Once the Gemara was sealed, there was no more universal uh, universal tradition for Klal Yisrael. We didn't, they didn't have the Sanhedrin anymore. There was no one authority. Now it's Batei Dinah. And yet, let's take the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch of the Mechabu was Neskabal. Why was it Neskabal? Because hundreds of Rabbanim decided in different communities, to accept the Shulchan Aruch. So that gives it the Toikif. In other words, every Kehillah is loyal to its, its Bezdin, and every Bezdin accepted it, so it became something of Kalah Yisrael. So generally, that's how it worked. There's still places that there weren't. Like, you know, comes to questions with the Nuschayis, or I mean, not fundamental things, kidneys, whatever, these types of Menhagim and, and Gzeris. The same is true with the Ikrim, with the Ikarim, uh, there were, there, were, there, were, there were different arguments. And then you saw, you know, when something was Nespashat Bechalt Futsus Yisrael. And we're not talking Stam Nespashat uh, because it was Nespashat by, uh, you know, by Rabbanim, by Dayanim, by Batidinim, by Goinim, by Tzadikim. So that generally is, uh, is, the, is the way how things get accepted. But this doesn't mean that the other shit is, 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 is a shit, there's a Mahalach. Just like you have the shit, that you're allowed to eat chicken and milk. A shit, it's a shit. And Allah, Rabbi Yisraeli, was an Elohit. That was his shit. But this is unique because this sort of got elevated to an Iker. And, pers- and defi- a person is cut off from, from yeah. Elam Abba because of it. So it's interesting. 
That's true. That's true. That's true. So far from Rebchayim, yeah? Nebuchadnezzar Pekairis is Echanah Pekairis, huh? Rebchayim, no? The Briska love saying it, right? Nebuchadnezzar Pekairis is Echanah Pekairis. That even Beshayig, it's a gather of Kfira. They like it very much. Then. He wasn't Apikaitis. Chiloshabbos. That nobody argues. He meant that an Apikaitis Beshayig is still a gather of a Kaifer. That's what he meant. A gather of a Kaifer. Sabriskevart. Sabriskevart. That he has a Gdod of an Apikaitis. Just because he's, he's making a mistake. The chefts of an apikaitis. It's partially that he does an Aveda, he's still doing an Aveda. Well, he's a gather of a koifer, that's the word. You have to treat him like a koifer. Huh? Chsidis Gleipnish has a da emes apikaitis. The pnimis is a amaymin. Ezokta is apikaitis. Yeah, the Chazanishin, you're the day of Shreipe, that the whole, everybody's Tanakhus Shanishbu, because uh, they're not educated. Chafetz Chaim already says, there's no, nobody knows how to be Meichiach, there's no Teichicha. Yeah, the Safila Lutvish Agdailan. The Chazanish has a big, nice trouble, yeah, you're the day of it. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.